Welcome everybody to our show today, Unrepentant Cyborgs. I'm Astrid County, and I'm here today with my co-host, Rain Heinrichs. It's actually Henrichs. I said Henrichs. Heinrichs, Henrichs. Said Heinrichs. Heinrichs sounds so much cooler, but we'll go with well, Henrichs. On the other hand, it's not my name. <laughs> picky, picky, picky. <laughs> and I am here with my co-host, and I guess also technically your co-host, Sam Livingston Gray. Good morning, everybody. And our guest today should be familiar to those of you who may know some of us from other older podcasts. Her name is Saran Yabarek, and we had hoped that she might join us to found Greater Than Code, but apparently she had cooler things to do. Uh, so we're here to talk to her about at least one of those and not to be bitter in any way. Got it, everybody? Saran, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. You know, it's so much great to hear you read that than it was to see it. It just I, I felt all the love and the, <laughs> you know, the excitement. I just I felt all of it. So thank you so much. And also the shade. Yeah. <laughs> the shade was spot on. It was very shady. We've missed you, Saran. <laughs> We've missed you too, Sam. It's been a very long time. So uh, what are we here to talk about? So today we're here to talk about Codeland, which I'm super, super excited about. I think it was three years ago when I went to my very first conference. And since then, uh, I've spoken all over the world and gone to a bunch of conferences, tech conferences specifically. And I've been keeping a running list of everything I hate about conferences and everything I love about conferences. This is my chance to really put all that to the test and see if I have any idea what I'm talking about. So it's Codenewy's first conference. It's two days. It's April 21 and 22 in New York City. And it's geared for people who have less than two years of professional experience. Well, I feel like that love-hate list could be the whole show. Was there anything in the particular you wanted to talk about, or do you want to skip past the negativity and maybe talk about the people that you're actually aiming this at? We can do any and all of the above. It's so funny. Every time I mention the negative list, people like to skip to like the best parts of conferences. I'm like, no, let's let's dig into some of the stuff that sucks, because I feel like we don't really talk about that a lot, you know? Oh, yeah. I love a good rant. Yeah. <laughs> Rent away, please. Okay, so number one, and I totally didn't realize this, and I feel like I was very blind to this until I started organizing my own conference. But one thing that we don't often appreciate is just how expensive it is to attend a conference, especially for people in our community who don't yet have tech jobs, who are still learning, who are really self-funding their trip. It's really expensive. New York City is not a cheap place. And we're able to you know, get a relatively good deal with like hotels, like 189 bucks a night, which is great for New York City. But if it's you know three nights, travel, take a day off of work and plus the the ticket price that's you know a thousand dollars you know at least to go attend and spend time with other people and that's something that if you are a working developer if your company is paying for you if you have an education stipend a lot of that you just completely forget just how much it costs and so that's one thing that I've been really thinking about is how do you make a conference like this very accessible and very doable for folks so one thing that we're doing to, I'm really really excited about is um we're having an opportunity scholarship I know other conferences have something similar to that as well but we had 93 people raise over twelve thousand dollars which allowed us to bring 33 people, not just bring them to Codeland to also cover their flight and cover hotel and childcare and really alleviate some of those other financial burdens that, again, people kind of forget about when they think about attending a conference. So that's definitely like number one on my list is just the inaccessibility of something as awesome as a conference. Well, that's really great. I really love the Opportunity Scholarship Program that they do at RubyConf and RailsConf. I've been a guide several times, and I actually ran the program at uh, Cascadia Ruby. One of the things that I really enjoyed personally as a 
as an attendee of RubyConf and RailsConf was the ability to be a guide and to sort of have a conference buddy that I could show around and talk to. And I was wondering if you're going to do that or if you're going to add other cool stuff to the program. How's that working? Yeah. So that's a really good point. And I think that's one of the big differences is instead of having an opportunity scholarship that involves like a, a peer buddy mentoring system, which I think you need at places like RubyConf and RailsConf because a lot of people who go aren't necessarily beginners and not necessarily new. They're people who've been doing it for a while. For us, everyone is new. The whole thing is like one big opportunity scholarship in terms of that buddy system and okay, in terms yeah. of that mentorship. But what we have done is I've tried to think really hard about what are the pieces of a conference that tend to become intimidating or that can be difficult for someone who's new to the industry. And so we've done a few things to modify that. One thing is we have lots and lots of breaks, lots and lots of breaks. We have food and snacks almost at every part. Um, we have an exhibit. We have lots of tables. We have lots of opportunities for people to engage in the hallway track. And I think it's one of the benefits of just having a smaller conference too, with having like, I think RailsConf is like several thousand people, which is huge. It has to take place at a convention center. It has to take place at a really big space, which kind of leads to it's really easy to feel isolated in that. So I think by virtue of the space we chose and the way we thought about programming, we have lots of opportunities to interact and, and bump heads in, in, in a good way. The other thing is we are creating a conference booklet. Uh, but I know a lot of conferences do like programs. But what we're doing is for each talk, we have a cheat sheet. So if you're doing a talk on you know, Ruby on Rails side project that you turn into a you know, multi-million dollar company, as someone in the audience who maybe has never done Ruby, never done Rails, doesn't know what a gem is, you know, I'm I'm over in like Python land, I'm not familiar with these words. What we have is a little cheat sheet that says, okay, here are some of the, the buzzwords that might trip you up. Here are some of the terms that you may not be familiar with. And it's just a one-liner just to go, oh, wait, what is that gem thing again? Oh, it's just a library. Okay, cool, got it. So really thinking through these different ways to make people feel Feel like they belong and that they can follow the conversation. I really like the idea of a cheat sheet because I feel like you spend so much time just trying to figure out what people are talking about yes. before you even know if you yes. can be engaged. Yes, exactly. And one thing that um that I'm also doing that I'm really excited about, which is super time consuming, but absolutely worth it is I personally work with each of the speakers to make sure that the content is not just good because, you know, the speakers are chosen because they're already awesome, but because, uh, but to make sure that it really fits in with our mission, with our kind of like touchy feely, welcoming, you know, vibes, and also to make sure that our community, our attendees can follow along. So I have had a minimum of three meetings with each speaker. We work through the talk outline together. We do slide reviews, which is actually probably one of the most important parts. You know, once you organize things in actual slides, you get to see, oh man, I didn't really spend enough time on this point. I don't really have a transition. I didn't introduce this topic. I didn't have a place to have the audience feel pain, right? And, and tension. I think having those emotional components is super, super important for a live talk. And then we do a final rehearsal where we make sure like the tone and picture, right? And the pacing is good and that kind of thing. So by being super, super hands-on with speakers and making sure that, um, that the talks are really tailored to our community, I'm helping to hopefully prevent some of the intimidation, some of the, oh man, this is totally over my head. A lot of those things that can happen for newbies attending conferences. That's really great. One of the things that I remember really liking about some of my favorite podcasts were when uh, one of the hosts would interrupt another one and say, hey, that thing you just said might not be familiar to everybody. And could you, you know, pause and unpack that for a minute? So it's really great to have that like on a sheet of paper. Yes. yes, that's what I've been doing a lot of it, but behind the scenes, right? It's like, no, 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 no. You can't talk about HIPAA compliant yet. There's like three things we have to talk about before we can talk about HIPAA compliant. So yes, that's exactly <laughs> my job. 
That sounds like it could be a great program for speaker newbies. Yeah, totally. And one other thing is what I've learned because because our speakers are both new. We have a bunch of first-time speakers. We also have seasoned speakers who've been doing this a long time. And one of the big benefits of having this system is that it's just really hard to get outside of your zone, right? It's really hard to see the talk from outside of yourself. And especially as um, for more seasoned speakers, they're generally used to talking at more advanced conferences, at language-specific conferences, at places where people already come in with a ton of context. And so it's really helpful to have someone go, no, 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 you can't assume that we know what spinning up servers means and we have to kind of modify a lot of that. So it's not so much about I'm new to speaking and I haven't done this enough to know how it works. It's really just about feedback and knowing that this is a new talk for a new audience and that alone makes the process really helpful. And this is just, I mean, this is what good communication is. It's meeting the person you're trying to reach at their level. Exactly. Yep, exactly. So before we leave the topic of the conferences and the prices, I wanted to ask, now that you've put one together, can you better explain why conferences are so expensive? Because I think when you're first getting started, it's kind of a surprise that a conference can be as expensive as it is. Sure. So I'm going to preface this by saying that I have not yet paid all of the bills for the conference. So (laughs) anything I say, it may totally change after the conference has happened. So honestly, that's kind of the part that I was a little confused about, too, because the conference didn't end up being as expensive as I expected. But I think there's a couple things that made it a little bit easier for me. One is I'm doing this 100% full-time and I'm the primary person on this. I've I've been able to fortunately pull people from the community to help with very specific tasks. So we've had a programming committee of 10 people who review the talks. We've had a programming committee or a review committee of eight people who review the scholarship submissions. I have a what I call my conference advisory board, which is basically, I think it's six other conference organizers who I really appreciate and I think their conferences are awesome. And anytime I have a, a budgetary or like logistical question, I'll ping them and go like, hey, I'm about to spend money on this. Is this stupid? Don't don't let me be stupid. And then they kind of like course correct, which is awesome. But beyond and, and also I've like dragged my husband into this and he's reluctantly um, taking care of some really boring administrative tasks that I don't want to do. Um, husbands are great. But for the most part, I'm doing this full time. I'm doing this, you know, this is like I spend at least 40 hours a week just on the conference. So because of that, I don't have a whole team of employees that, you know, for like a company conference that I need to pay salaries for to like take them off of a product to work on this. Like I don't have a lot of those just like human resources related expenses. It's just it's just me, you know, trying to pay for my own time. So that really helps. I think the fact that we got the venue donated, so we're doing it at Microsoft, we're doing, and they're just donating the space to us for free. That takes a huge line item off of the budget. And other than that, it's mostly been about food, like making sure the food is good, um, making sure you pay. And that's one thing too, we pay for our speakers to travel um, and we cover their hotel and all that. So it generally hasn't been as expensive. The advice that I got from the conference advisory board that I've really taken to heart is making sure that the ticket sales can, for the most part, cover the cost of the conference. And then anything that you get from sponsors will essentially be like money for the time that I've like the six months of full-time work that I've spent on this. So assuming you get enough sponsors, it should work out. Quote, you know, for, for now, we'll see if it actually works out that way. Yeah, that makes sense because I would imagine that those fixed costs are uh, the ones you have to plan for the most in advance anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. And the one thing, though, that I, I'm noticing now, and I'm, I'm very happy that I've been very, very, what's the word, like, I guess, conservative with my budget, is even though we have 250 tickets to sell for the conference, 
you don't really have 250 tickets to sell because you have, um, for example, the programming committee and the review committee, I want to give free tickets to them for them to come. The way we've done the ticketing is there's a student ticket, which is the cheapest ticket. And there's the individual ticket. If you can afford it, pick that one. And if you are, if you're able to, there's uh, the supporter ticket, which is the most expensive one that kind of subsidizes the student ticket. So the assumption in the pricing is that the average ticket price would be pretty close to that individual ticket. That has totally not happened. Most people don't pick the supporter ticket. So even like the average, my my general budget, even if I were to sell out all 250 tickets, is going to end up being a little bit lower than I anticipated. So I think a lot of the potential budget issues for me anyway, isn't going to be so much from the conference being expensive. It's going to be more likely from the revenue being less for a number of different reasons that I didn't anticipate when I first crafted the budget. So that's really interesting about the uh, the average ticket price. And that calls to mind my first reaction when I, when I heard about Codeland, which was, that sounds really cool, but I probably shouldn't go because I would be taking a seat away from somebody who it's, you know, who the conference is more directly aimed at. And uh, I'm the sort of person who would definitely buy a supporter ticket and probably throw in some extra on top of that. So are your is your marketing playing into that, do you think? Or what else is going on there? Yeah, exactly. Exactly what you said. And I think that was me, the initial ticket structure taking best practices from tech conferences that are not specifically for newbies and mm. assuming that it would still apply. And you're totally right. If you are a supporter, if you can afford that ticket, chances are you probably don't need to go to the conference. Chances are you probably already have a secure dev job. You're doing well. You know all the stuff. And so it isn't, you know, we, we designed the tech conference so that if you are a more experienced developer, you will still love the crap out of this conference. It's so good and the topics are so on point and the speakers are so awesome. And I made sure to not make it too like, this is only, you know, junior 101 things. Like, it's not really what it's about. But at the same time, it's not designed, it's not catered to someone with more experience. And so that is something that I just didn't appreciate until until it was kind of too late, <laughs> until I'd already put it out there. But then the other side of it is, if you're going for people who are still learning, who don't quite have the career that they want, you can't really raise the ticket prices. You know, like yeah. our ticket prices for a two-day conference are, are pretty good. Like they're pretty affordable compared to other, you know, tech conferences. And we did it on a Friday and a Saturday so that people wouldn't be forced to take two days off of work so that they can, you know, use up one of their weekends, but not like the full weekend. And so we try to think about ways to make it accessible and affordable to folks. But at the end of the day, we can't really go much lower than that to cover costs, but we can't really go higher because of the demographics. So these are all things that I've really started to appreciate now that I've, you know, it's kind of like played out and I'm seeing things. Uh, so yeah, those are all part of lessons learned. Okay. So Saran, you mentioned something that you don't like about conferences, but what is something that you do like that you did continue on with this Codeland conference? So one of the things I love about conferences is the ability to create an immersive experience with and for people that you really care about. And that was one thing that uh, I remember I was talking to um, a friend of mine, uh, Dwayne O'Brien at PayPal. And when I first uh, told him about this conference, like over a year ago at this point, I told him about this conference and I said, yeah, you know, I'm planning this thing. It's going to be for new developers. And I had like a rough idea of what I wanted to do with it. And he gave me the best advice. And he said, you need to really, really think about what the user experience is going to be. What, what is the story? What is the journey? And I took that very, very seriously. And I spent many hours just, you know, sitting on planes, sitting at restaurants and just thinking like, how do I want people to feel from the moment they walk in to them picking up their badge, to them picking up their swag back, sitting in the audience, going to the bathroom, like what should people feel? What should they experience at every single moment? And once I had a really, really clear picture of that, 
everything else really fell into place. You know, it, it made the talks and kind of the way the talk should feel so much clearer. It made, you know, the, the idea of like the conference booklet came out of that, right? It was like, how do I want people to feel? I never want them to feel lost. I want them to feel excited and energized. And we have to remove some of those negative feelings to accomplish that. So that's when that came in. So I think the the conferences that have really, um, for me, stood out and really made an impact are the ones where it was super, super clear that the organizers thought through the full experience. Um, one conference I'm going to shout out is Django Khan, which I was lucky enough to to keynote last year. And those people are actually on my conference advisory board. And that was one of the conferences that was so impactful to me, just on a very emotional human level. And it was also my first time really in the Python Django world. Um, so that, you know, that was different. But they just so clearly thought about making sure every element of it from the bathroom, like there were like bathroom signs that said, you know, um, what to do if someone if someone is in the bathroom that you don't feel like should be because their gender is like a, you know, the, the, the trans bathroom conversation. And it was like step one, like mind your business, basically. And it was <laughs> nice. awesome. And it made me so happy. And I was like, wow, like you thought about that. They had sanitary napkins and, you know, tampons and stuff in both the men and the women's, you know, gendered bathrooms. Like they thought about that, you know, and that was one of the conferences that really stood out to me as being it wasn't flashy you know it wasn't a flashy conference that had like oh like we have a you know a concert and live band like it was a very we're here to be a community we're here to talk about Django but we are going to make sure that every moment you spend with us you are going to feel loved and included and heard and so you know pulling from those elements and really making sure every aspect of this conference echoes that is something I've, I've taken from other conferences. Yeah, that example of uh, bathroom signage and having sanitary pads in, in all the bathrooms. I mean, yeah, the fact that that's not a big flashy thing is actually even more important. I feel like it's such a simple, basic thing that you can do that I'm astonished that all conferences don't just do it because it makes it that much better. Exactly, exactly. Like I've, I've been to conferences and th those have been great too that have done a lot of really cool, like, oh my God, type things. And they're awesome. But when you experience them, you're thinking, well, obviously this is going to happen at every conference. Like, this is just, you know, this conference happened to have the budget or the sponsorship. You know, it, it stands out because you're probably never going to see it again. But when you integrate that experience into the really small things that, you know, people need to use the bathroom anyway. So why not make it an inclusive and explicitly welcoming place? It really raises the bar. And I think that it changes our expectations of how conferences should be and really how all spaces should be. I think there's a big difference between, not to name any names, but conferences that incorporate diversity because it's a marketing stunt, because it improves their PR and what you do if you actually want to make people feel included and welcome. And the way that those bathrooms were set up is an example of the latter where you actually ask yourself, what do these people need? And then you do that thing. And you don't ask yourself, what would it look good if we said? <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. So that's one of the things that I was I was very relieved about. Um, so our community has always been a very diverse and inclusive community. I mean, that's that's kind of like the whole point of starting it. We're not a diversity community. We don't. And it's so funny because when people look at me, they're like, oh, your community must be for women or must be for black people. And I'm like, no, we're for everyone. Um, I just happen to be a black woman. Like, that's just kind of how that worked out. For many reasons, I I really wanted to make sure Code Newbie, whether it was the podcast lineup and the guests that we choose or the chat that we have, the topics we cover, the meetups that we do, I wanted to make sure that it really reflected the world. And I wanted to make sure that it was diverse from, you know, race and gender, but also socioeconomic status and age and, you know, coding journey. And, and so when we did the CFP for the conference, and I think about 
two thirds of the speaker lineup are from the CFP and the 30% are invited speakers. When we did the CFP for it and, uh, you know, I had my review committee take a, a run through first and then I made the final cut. I was so relieved to find out that we like had such a great pool and it wasn't me going like, Hey, Hey, diverse people, like you should totally apply to my stuff. It, it was like, because we had already set up this expectation, we already had this brand of being inclusive um, and welcoming that was reflected already in the pool that we had. So I was really happy to be able to look at our lineup and go, Oh, thank God we like, we did it and we didn't have to push it as like a branding or a marketing strategy to get it done. I believe that we tell stories even when we don't mean to. Like, I really believe that there are all these unintentional narratives that happen whenever we make decisions on who we hire, who we give a mic to, who we give a stage to. And so when I think about the people that I champion, and every time you select a speaker, you're championing that person. Every time you retweet someone, you're championing that person. Every time you pick someone on your guest, you're championing that person. You are co-signing on at the very least, like their work. And so every time we do that, or I do that, I always think, what is the unintentional story that goes along with that cosign? And so when I think about, uh, for example, the, our, our Code Newbie podcast, one huge bias that I had and an unintentional story that I was telling that I didn't mean to was that if you are a new programmer, you should be a Rubyist because all my guests were Ruby developers. And someone called me out on it. Someone emailed me and said, hey, like I know it's like you have... Almost all Ruby, and that's because, you know, I'm a Rubyist and my network is heavily biased towards Ruby uh, developers and I go to mostly Ruby conferences. And that was an unintentional story that I was telling that I totally didn't mean to. And so now every time I'm tempted to, you know, to invite a Rubyist, I'm like, wait a minute, like, how many Rubyists have I had? And like, am I, am I, what, what story am I telling? What message am I sending? And I'm very, very hyper, hyper aware of that. And I, I really wish more people did that. You know, I wish that. I wish that more people recognize that, you know, because I hear the argument a lot of, well, I don't care about diversity and like, I'm not trying to say that people of color can't code. Like, I just care about the tech. And that is so irrelevant. Like, it doesn't matter what your intentions are. What matters is what people pick up on and what people see in the decisions that you make. And people will do pattern recognition. They will make assumptions about what you're saying, even if you don't mean to. So I feel like if you are in a position of power where you can pick who you select, who you champion, you should take that responsibility seriously. Saran, you mentioned that when you did the call for the conference, that it was a comfortable diversity of speakers because you'd already developed an inclusive community. So what do you think you did different with developing Code Newbie so that your community was inclusive, especially now that we're hearing about a lot of issues within certain communities of there being a lot of exclusivity? Sure. So I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think that there are a few things that have worked out to our advantage in terms of that. I think number one is I really, really wanted everyone to be nice. And I only want you to hang out in, in our community if you also want to be nice. And if you don't want to be nice, then I don't want you here. I My goal is not to have the world's biggest community of new developers. Like That's not what it's about. I want to have the biggest community of the nicest, warmest, kindest, most supportive people uh, who are learning to code. And so one thing that I've done is we start every single chat with the three rules, be nice, be supportive, be honest. And we say that every single time at the beginning 
of every single chat. And the idea there is really to just be very explicit about the expectations. When you walk into our space, like our space is not, it is not a public space. It is not for anyone and everyone. It is here for you to leverage if you agree to conduct yourself accordingly. And so we've had not many. We've had a few instances. I remember early on when we had our our discourse page, uh, or we we still have the discourse. But I remember early on there was one particular comment where the guy said something about like not wanting to be friends with women, or so it wasn't like explicitly sexist. It was just weird. It was like a weird like, what do you mean by that? And the community jumped on it immediately, and and like very nicely too. They immediately jumped on. They're like. We're not sure what you mean by this, but we don't think that, you know, this is really the appropriate comment for you. Know, they really, if, if they were before, I, before <laughs> it even got to me, there were already like three or four people who basically told this person like, that is not okay. And the person never came back, which is totally fine. And so, you know, really being explicit about those expectations and not, you know, I think that a lot of times we think about code of conduct and, and those types of things. A lot of times it's uh, in case this happens, this is what we should do. But instead, we are pushing best behavior to the forefront. And that's almost like the first barrier to entry before you can even talk to us. And I think that really has helped, you know, some degree of self-policing in the community, but also really helped attract people who also want to be really nice and helpful. So that's been really, really huge. For me, this is a great example of the importance of leadership in creating the kind of culture that you want to have. It's not just a matter of telling people how they ought to behave. It's behaving that way and leading by example. Exactly. Yeah. And to that point, I'm the world's biggest cheerleader when it comes to like my persona on the Code account. It's really funny. I, I always wonder um, for people who follow both Code and who follow my personal account, how like big the difference in personality is. Cause you know, I'm like much snarkier in my personal account um, and definitely drop way more F-bombs um, than, you know, I do in the Code <laughs> account. And when I switch to that account, I am all butterflies and rainbows and unicorn. I mean, people will tweet. I will turn any negative tweet into the most positive accomplishment in your coding career. And that's very intentional, right? Like we'll retweet everything. We'll reply with lots of go Sam. And, you know, we're so proud of you. And this, oh, you're, you know, you didn't finish the project, but that's okay. You know, you're moving forward. Progress is everything. We we're really intentionally super like over the top, happy and lots of exclamation points. And it was really funny because I think it was a year ago I had a like a inflammation of my shoulder cap or, or something in my right arm, my right, my right shoulder, which meant that I couldn't like do Twitter, like I couldn't type. And it became really, really painful like two minutes before the chat started. And so my husband's there. He's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, we've been, we have never not done a Twitter chat. We are doing the Twitter chat. And he's like, but you can't type. And I said, all right, you're going to have to type for me. So I would dictate the tweets. And it was the funniest thing because, you know, he would tweet and I would go, no, you need a minimum of three exclamation points. You need at least two smiley faces. <laughs> and that's kind of like when I realized, uh, you know, like how over the top it really was when I'm like dictating, like there aren't enough sunglass smiley faces and an exclamation point and make sure, you know, make sure to add a heart in there too. Just, you know, just for good measure. So I take that very, very seriously. I'm very serious in my positivity. <laughs> Stay on brand, honey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that brings up a little bit of how awkward I feel sometimes dictating text messages to Siri, right? It's like, yeah. yes, please come over now, period. I'm very excited, <laughs> exclamation point. <laughs> and forget emoji, right? It's just not going to happen. Exactly. And and because I'm in pain, like none of this sounds happy. You know, I'm like, <laughs> good job, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Like it sounds very aggressive, but it, it you know, it looks, it looks very happy. 
Yeah, if I could just teach Siri that bang means exclamation point, my my text would get a lot nicer, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I want to just highlight a thing you said in passing there, which is that you were in pain and not feeling very good, but you still made it a point to appear positive in, in the tweets. And I, <laughs> yeah. I think we can all learn a lot from that, uh, myself included. Uh, a lot of people think that congruence means saying what you feel, right? Wearing your heart on your on your sleeve. For me, it's about coming across the way you you want to come across, and and while being true to yourself. But it doesn't just mean if you're angry, people know you're angry. Yeah, and I think that's one of the harder parts, probably the hardest part about making a community your full time job is a lot of times I don't feel that way. A lot of times I'm not happy. I'm really stressed out or I'm just kind of like not in a good mood. And it can be really hard to shield the community from that. Someone recently said to me, and it, it kind of just stuck with me for a long time. He said, you know, who he, he said, do you have a community? And I was like, uh, I like started a community and I have friends. Does that count? He's like, no, no, no. Do you have a community? Do you have people that you can go to when you're the one that needs support and you need that push and you need that. And I have friends who can do that, but it's not exactly the same thing. And when he posed that question to me, it made me realize just how, you know, I created Konumi because it was a thing that I wish had existed and I thought it could help people. But almost like the cost of that is when I'm dealing with more like meta community things, when I'm not sure about, you know, a decision I need to make, when I'm just not in a good mood, I still have to push that aside and I still have to add all those smiley faces and, you know, have all those exclamation points. I still have to keep on that persona. And I'm much better at that on some days than I am at others. Um, and you can kind of tell from Twitter, like the days that I'm super happy, there's like 20 times more tweets than, you know, there is um, when I'm like not having a very good day. So kind of like maintaining that level of energy when you're personally just not in that same headspace, that's one of the hardest parts of doing this. So as you were talking about being sort of the community cheerleader, even when you don't feel the cheer, right? It occurred to me that that is very similar to what I hear from a lot of women, especially in tech, which is that we ask women, especially to do a lot of additional unpaid emotional labor. And I wonder if that parallel rings true to you. And maybe if the difference is that you're doing this community voluntarily or like, what do you think about all that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I have a few advantages that shields me from a lot of that labor. One is that I work for myself. So I don't really have to put up with your bullcrap if I don't want to. You know, I I, really, <laughs> I can choose who I work with. You know, if I don't like you, if we don't get along, if we don't share the same values, then we're just not going to work together. So I have a lot of agency in that sense. I can always walk away from uh, a situation. I don't really have to put up with a lot of stuff the way that um, if you're at a big company and you know maybe you like your boss, maybe you like most of your team, but there's that one person that just like doesn't get it or you know um, or something like that. So I think I'm very fortunate to be in a position where I can work for myself, I can sustain myself, and I don't have that. And I think that kind of speaks to, and I'm, I'm hoping to write a blog post about this someday, but I think that kind of speaks to this larger issue of being paid, period, and the importance of financial freedom. I think it was four years ago where I had a job working for someone who was super sexist, just a really, even if he wasn't sexist, just like a bad manager, a very bad leader, and uh, just not somewhere I wanted to be. And I felt very stuck. I couldn't afford to leave. I was basically living paycheck to paycheck at that point. And I was in, just in the position where I thought, wow, I hate going to work every day. This is the worst ever. 
no matter how many times I try to explain to my boss that his comments are inappropriate and, you know, try to like train him on how to behave as a manager, it's totally not working or it works for like a day. And then he goes back to saying some, you know, some really um, uncool stuff. And I thought to myself, I can't leave because I can't afford to leave. And that was the first time it really, I really made the connection between money and freedom and, you know, I think that a lot of times we talk about freedom, it's well, in the financial context, it's like, I'm free to not work and just like hang out all day. And that's not really what it is. For me, it's freedom to always be able to walk away from a bad situation and to never be put in a situation where I have to take on that unpaid emotional labor. I have to deal with this person saying racist, sexist things to me. I have to, you know, work terrible long hours and, you know, take a toll on my mental, physical health because I can't afford to. So after that job, and I eventually ended up finding a, another job and, you know, leaving and then learned to code and all that. But after that position, I started really, really taking my finances much more seriously. And I don't want that to sound like the solution to, you know, misogyny is like everyone make more money because that's that's just stupid. <laughs> but I do think that it's important to advocate for your paycheck whenever you're given the opportunity. I feel like I spend way too much time trying to convince brilliant people that they should be paid more. And it drives me nuts. Like I'm thinking, do you know what people of your level get paid? They get paid 20, 30 times, or 30, not times, <laughs> 20 to $30,000 more than you. And they're like, oh, but I don't really need it. And like, I'm fine. And then they're in situations where they can't leave because they don't have that financial freedom. So for me, while I'm shielded, from a lot of that labor, I think there's a big connection between that um, that choice and you know making sure that people don't mess with my money because that's how I'm able to create a situation where I don't have to deal with your crap. I just want to jump in real quick with a uh, shout out to a podcast episode I was listening to on my road trip this last week. Uh, it's from Tech Done Right, which is a great podcast techdoneright.io. And their episode number two about career development with Brandon Hayes touched a lot on some of the factors that go into the sort of logarithmic curve of salary in our field and talked about salary stuff a little bit in general. So if uh, if you wanted to go into that a little bit more, go check out Tech Done Right number two. So I wanted to jump back into talking about financial freedom. There was a an article that came out a little while ago that talked about of these professionals that we polled Lots of them said that things other than money were, were more important to them than money. And my response to that is, yeah, once you reach a level of financial freedom, a little extra money doesn't really change. Yeah, it's sampling bias. A little extra money doesn't change your outlook as much as getting you know, more freedom in other areas. But if you're not making enough money to go to a different state or move to a different job, that is severely constricting. And they were talking about Oh, you should focus on on finding happiness in, in 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 your job and things like that. Well, you need money to do that. Yes, amen. Yeah, one hundred percent. That's that's also one of my biggest pet peeves. Is and that's also kind of the thing that irritates me when people say, um, "I don't really care about my salary." Like, I I really want to focus on like other things. And I think what people don't understand is that when you have more money, you can do things like quit your job to do your side project into a you know full-time gig. You can take a year off and learn a whole new programming language if that's your thing um, before deciding to take on a job. You can really be super, super selective about what job you take on because um, and, you know if that takes six months, that's fine because you can afford it. And I think that this idea that 
finding happiness and finding passion is totally independent of how much money you have is like the biggest lie ever told. Like that's, that's told by super privileged, rich people who just have so much money. They, for, they just for, forgot that there's a link, but yeah, hundred percent you need, I'm going to make like a terrible analogy right now, but it's almost like saying, you know, if I want to build a desk, do I want like lots of nails? Nobody wants nails, obviously. Like who cares about nails, but you need the nails to make a desk. I don't know if that analogy made sense, but sure. You know what I mean? Like money is the tool that allows you to find happiness and find passion and do hobbies and do all these things. And yeah. And the function we use to to value, to place a value on money is nonlinear. And what I mean by that is if you have zero dollars, $10,000 is a lot of money. If you have a million dollars, $10,000 might be your latte budget. I don't know. It's Mm -hmm. not very much money. (laughs) Well, there's research that actually talks about that, and it was discussing exactly what you were bringing up, Rain, about how much money you're making and its impact on your happiness. And basically, the research said, once you reach about $75,000 in your salary, then whatever you're making past that is not going to be a huge increase in your ability to be happy. But if you're making 30000 then if to go from 30000 to 40000 or 50000 is a huge jump. And but when you're making, you know, maybe 70 or 90 or 100 or more, then an additional 10 or 20,000 is not going to change your lifestyle. Like it's going to take you getting to about 350,000 and up for your lifestyle to significantly change at that point. And I think that like to your point, Saran, a lot of people who have reached a higher level of satisfaction in their job and their salary have forgotten what it's like to have a lot of potential, but not have the income to be able to support even living in a place you want to live or be able to put your kids in the school that they, that you want them to be in or to be able to buy the food that you want to have to eat. And so those little things that people take for granted when they already have it, they become huge obstacles to your ability to be happy or passionate or feel like you have choices because they kind of become like little jail sales that you feel like if it's, I have to struggle this much you know, to, to try to leave my job to find a better environment to work in, that seems impossible. That seems like fairy tale, magical stuff that only some certain people get to do. And I just can't take that kind of risk when I know that if I don't get the same or at least get somewhere close to where I am, you know, my whole world can fall apart. Yes, 100%. And I think that for people who are past that threshold, that $75,000 threshold, you know, before that, it's very clear that the amount of money you make makes like a direct impact on your lifestyle, right? Like you can move into a better neighborhood, a better apartment, better home, like those kinds of like big life decisions. But after a certain point when, you know, as a developer, if you're making like 100 to 130, your lifestyle may not change as much. But what I've seen from, you know, friends and people I talk to is I've seen that they feel the pain of not making as much as they could when they come to certain decision points. Um, and those points might be, man, I'm, I really wish I could turn this idea into like a real project, right? At that point, you need like a, a relatively, at times, um, a nice like infusion of cash, or you need, um, uh, a, a nice nest in order to, uh, like a nice nest egg in order to justify, you know, maybe not working for a couple months. It might be them saying like, wow, I have this like really big emergency. I wasn't anticipating. And now I have all these bills that I think I was going to pay. So I think what makes it really easy to forget is it's not the difference between, you know, living in different apartments or homes when you're past that threshold. It's more about, when you run into trouble or when you have a really cool idea or you have something you want to do that's out of the ordinary, you realize that, holy crap, I can't do it. I can't leave. I can't try this because I didn't 
push and I didn't advocate um, as much as I could have. I wish this was another podcast so that I could talk about how our dependence on a salary to survive is inherently uh, coercive. Mm, yeah. Why can't we make this the podcast you want? <laughs> we change our name it every also, episode. It's fine. <laughs> it also <laughs> means that the employer-employee relationship is inherently coercive and fraught. But I think we're seeing a lot of that now because there's a lot of, I guess, the question of ethics coming up as some of the technologies that have scaled are starting to get to a point where if you automate them, you don't have to employ people. And what does that mean for all those people to lose their jobs? Is this a good thing? Should we be doing this? But it's already happening. So it's not even a question of should we do it? It's happening. And there's a lot of concern about what are you actually going to have an option to pick from as an employee? Like, are you going to get a salary? Are you going to get benefits? Are they going to be living wages? Are are you really just going to have to go out on your own and make your own kind of path and be pretty much self-employed in order to ensure that you have what you need? Because there's a lot of people, especially in tech, there's a lot of people who are training their replacements who are going to be cheaper. And those people are going to eventually be replaced by something that's automated. Yeah, this is a structural thing that we've touched on a few times on this podcast before, but just this basic idea that I think, Rain, I think where you were going was sort of the standard anti-capitalism rant number two, right? Which is that (laughs) (laughs) these stories of, you know, entire sectors of the workforce being automated out of existence, right? That is capitalism doing its job. It's maximizing value under that system. I can mix it up a bit. I could go, I could pull in a little (laughs) bit of number four. (laughs) Right. We also have to talk about how we balance that with other aspects of our society, right? Do we have a social safety net? Well, you know, we're working on dismantling that too. Yay. One of the ways that this manifests itself is you'll see that when people, especially newer developers, try to market themselves, they get put down pretty hard a lot of times. And this is people with higher status within the community policing other people in the community for trying to make enough money to survive. And it's disgusting. And I think we should, anytime I see someone marketing themselves, their ability is trying to make more money within this screwed up system. I am all for that. And you should absolutely do that. And anyone who wants to stop that needs to take a seat. Wow. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. You especially see it when the people who are trying to market themselves are underrepresented because now there's a stereotype threat involved. Like there's extra reasons for them to get crapped on. And it's so disgusting. Yeah. And um, when I hear you talk about this, one thing that I've been struggling with as a full-time entrepreneur now is it's kind of like realizing that the way that I understood businesses is not the way it should be. It's the way it is because a lot of people decided that's the way it should be. And I feel like thanks to to Twitter's general um, cynicism, I feel like every, you know, every week I'm coming up with this new thing where I'm like, Oh, this thing that I took for granted, this system, this belief, this understanding that I thought, you know, just was, doesn't need to be that way. And so, you know, one thing that I, I really appreciate specifically with the conference is being able because I control the money, I'm my only, you know, employee, I can decide how we spend it. I can splurge on something like a conference booklet, which according to like capitalism would be like totally, I think it's going to cost like a couple thousand dollars, which, you know, according to capitalism is like not the most efficient use of like money and time. And it's not the most profitable way to do things and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, when I, when I think about just the way I want to use money and resources, my default and what I feel like the, like the world quote unquote has taught me is 
stretch every dollar as far as it can go, make as much money as you can, be super profitable. And I think part of that mentality is also me worried that I'm going to be taken advantage of. So like, I don't want to be the fool in the situation. And that goes back to like being an immigrant and all kinds of like, you know, personal childhood baggage that we don't really need to unpack. But I have like this constant feeling of being an outsider and feeling like, I don't know how the system works. Therefore, I'm very vulnerable to being taken advantage of. So I tend to lean very heavily into like the capitalist idea of like, how do I make sure I make the most money and nobody, you know, beats me and all that. And now that like I have that agency and I can make a lot of those business decisions, I have to check myself and I have to go, wait a minute, just because that's what the system taught you doesn't mean that's how you have to be. You can just not do that. You know, you can prioritize people's happiness or you can prioritize the things you want to do over like making the most money that you can. So I feel like a lot of it, even for those of us who might be better intentioned, is unlearning a lot of that and figuring out, wait a minute, it's not the way it is. It's the way we decided. And we as individual people can make different decisions. Yeah, I feel like one of the other things that people don't really think about much is the idea that there's a trope that you see pretty often is that, you know, the U.S. and the West is a capitalist society. And that framing just says that capitalism is the dominant structural force in our society. But really what it is, is capitalism is one of the many systems that we have to live in and navigate and blend together and make trade-offs between as we live our, our whole lives. And I really hate that framing of capitalism uber alles, right? Yeah, yeah. And it really creates this us versus them, you know? And it's so funny because yeah. I feel like a big part of marketing and branding and PR is to convince people that it's not us versus them, but really it is, you know, like really behind <laughs> behind the scenes, it's like, how do we make the most money and get all the glory and have all extract all the value? You know, that's really what it is. It's just, you know, marketers try to convince us that it's not that way. And so for me, it's just been like reminding myself, like, you don't have to operate on that. Like you can create your own rules. And that's been just really important for me. And also one of the best things that they can do is take an us versus us and then frame it as us versus them so that we fight each other. Ooh. Ooh, that was deep. <laughs> that was deep. I like that. One of the the resources that has really helped me get out of that mindset, um, that I think you all might be interested in if you don't know don't know it, um, it's called Give and Take. It's a book by I think it's Adam Grant, who I believe is a professor at either MIT or Harvard. And it is an awesome book. And it just made me feel so much better about myself. Um, and those are the best books, the ones that make you feel better about yourself. And the book is all about this idea of givers and takers and matchers. So givers are the people who tend to just give, give, give. Takers, you know, don't give. They are very selfish and take, take, take. And then most people are matchers, meaning that they kind of keep score. They're like, yeah, sure, I'll give you something, but I'm going to call in this favor later on. So I'm going to add. So first of all, have, have any of you read the book yet? No. Nope. Okay, great. Just heard of it just now. Great. Awesome. So in terms of who of those three groups is most likely to succeed in the world in terms of like business and career success and, you know, those types of things, which of those three do you feel like is most likely to succeed? The matcher. Okay. Which one do you think is the most likely to fail? You'd like to be like the lowest of the, the three groups. The taker. Any other? Any I other would agree with both of those. Yeah. Okay. So givers are both. Givers are both to people most likely to succeed and most likely to lose. Because what happens is in the beginning of their career, their endeavor, the thing that they're, you know, working on, because they're the ones that are giving, 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 they like actually don't have anything. <laughs> like they've given it all away. But <laughs> right. what they do over time, which just really was really fascinating to me, is over time they end up basically building a personal network of people who are either also givers or also or matchers. So they end up building a community 
community people who are really interested in giving back to them and who really kind of like buy into their giving philosophy. And so they're able to kind of get a lot of that back later on. And also by giving, they're able to create more value for the entire group. So they're able to make the pie bigger, which means when it's their turn to kind of like, you know, take their slice, they have a bigger slice. And to me, this was awesome because I had always thought of business as a zero sum game. I always thought of it as like, if I don't get this dollar, you get this dollar. We can't both get a dollar. That's just ridiculous. And when I read this book, you know, I, I'm definitely a giver. Like that's my instinct. And I'm constantly trying to suppress it because I'm trying to make sure I don't take it, you know, I'm not taking advantage of. But when I read that, I thought, oh my goodness, this is actually an advantage. You know, as long as I'm like aware when people actually do take advantage of me, this idea of being the person that offers up stuff is not inherently anti-capitalist or anti, you know, profitability or, or any of those or anti-success. You know, we can all win um, by giving and helping each other. And that just really, really helped change my mindset. Well, now I have another book to read. Thanks. You're this welcome. Is, no, really. Thank you. <laughs> this is where I'm obligated to point out that this is a win of socialism within a capitalist system by people self-organizing <laughs> in a socialist, in a socialist non-hierarchy. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's all socialism because I think part of what we forget is that part of capitalism is supposed to be this free market and the market is dictated by value and the supply and demand. And value is not only profit. Value can be a lot of different things. And we only talk about money as the only exchange for whatever you're doing. But there's also you can make something of value and that doesn't have to be an actual product. And as long as there is demand for it, then you have created a market economy. And, and then that's when I point out that capitalism and markets are orthogonal. <laughs> But money is so easy to quantify. Of course, but you can't have a lot of the things you want without creating some sort of value, which is like what marketing is supposed to be doing. Yeah. But a lot of the value has to do with what people are drawn to. It's it's more than just money. It has to do with how you make them feel and if they feel like this is something meant for them. And that requires that you have to do more than just make a cheaper, faster product. I feel like we've gotten a little bit far afield here because <laughs> we're we're now discussing the overthrow of capitalism which i am here for by the way but now we haven't got that far because you're not repenting are you mr cyborg <laughs> yeah that's the purpose of Codeland, right Saranda? you're trying to create a conference that has a huge amount of value not necessarily a conference where you're going to make the most money Yes. And I appreciate that full circle. That was a very, very <laughs> smart full circle. And it allows me to to touch on a different thing, which we don't really talk about too much, which is the actual program for it. We have uh, 27 speakers and I think four or five panels. And one thing that I'm really excited about and one thing I was very aware of when picking the different talks is to make sure to have a selection of talks that helps almost like reshape the way we think about technology and expand the application of tech. I think that a lot of times when we talk about code and even just like in our daily jobs as coders, a lot of times it's very capitalist driven. It's a lot about, you know, making a ton of money for our employer, for our company, making sure we're as efficient as we possibly can, extracting as much value as we possibly can. And a lot of the examples that we have don't necessarily value money and efficiency in their projects. They value things like 
overthrowing a oppressive regime. That is a topic that we're going to discuss. Um, we have topics that talk about taking vacant land that's you know either been abandoned or isn't going to be used for many years and turning it into gathering places for the community and making community gardens and playgrounds and places uh, you know for free for people to to engage in. We have one woman talking about the New York Public Library and how do you kind of take lessons learned from the startup community from the quote unquote traditional tech world tech companies and use that to create products and solutions that are free for the millions of people who use the services and resources at the public library. And so I really tried very hard to pick topics that are a little bit out of the norm when we think about tech, when we think about companies that make you go, oh, wow, I didn't think about using code in that way to solve that problem in that space for these people. And so that's one thing that I'm really excited about is to have an opportunity to say, you know, because Codeland in a lot of ways is a reflection of my own worldview. It's, you know, I think that code like many things, is just a tool. And whatever we want with that tool, we can assign whatever value we want to that tool. And the value that, or the values that we are assigning or I'm assigning at Codeland is community and collaboration and really, you know, serving people who might tend to be ignored or might not be valued by a more capitalist society. And so a lot of the themes resonate with that. And you know what? If you're building community-focused cooperative spaces in the real world, you're doing way more than a hundred Twitter socialists like me. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's, um, there's this one woman, Ezra, who is amazing. I heard her speak. Um, at, it wasn't a tech conference. It was like a more like a politics, social change conference about a year ago. And I said, I don't know where or how I'm going to get in contact with her, but if I do anything in the future, I'm making sure that she's part of it. And she's someone who, um, is coming in from Bahrain and she doesn't, she does a lot of speaking, but she doesn't record any of her talks. She doesn't have photography taken of her because like her life is constantly in danger. Like this is the person that is coming to tell you how you can use Ruby on Rails to create social change and, you know, push back on, um, on oppressive government. And so I think just when I heard her story, I was like, holy crap, I did I never applied, you know, my coding skills and, and what I know about code to something so important. So I think, you know, the more voices we can share like that, the more stories we can show, I think the better off we'll all be. Um, I was listening to, I want to say it was a, a talk with Anil Dash, and he brought up something that I didn't even think about until he said it, which was that when you get a computer science degree, it's one of the only like professional degrees that you can attain without getting, without having to take an ethics course. And oh, yeah. that he thinks that that's an issue because look, you can't become a doctor without taking an ethics course. You can't even get an MBA without taking an ethics course, but you can learn how to make technology, which you can argue is one of the biggest catalysts of change, period, at least right now in culture. Also technology that literally keeps people alive and or kills them. Yes, but you can do that without ever having to even consider ethical questions, which I think is a problem. So yeah. that's probably why there's a lot of efforts to try to do something around organizing, something around social justice, because it's just it's like this little thing that we kind of didn't pay attention to that has now grown into this gigantic little shop of horrors kind of plant monster. And <laughs> its tentacles are in everything. And now we're just asking the questions like, is that good? Should we do that? Whose decision is that? And there's kind of this answer of like tech is neutral, which is not true. Well, we like to end the show with uh, either a reflection or a call to action or something that we feel like we've learned from this episode. And I really want to thank you, Saran, for the book recommendation for Give and Take. Uh, I definitely have to read that. I have a talk proposal out to talk about some of the psychological research into luck 
which is fascinating. But as I was working on the proposal, I realized that it lacked a satisfactory conclusion. And I think that idea of give and take might be what I want to do with that. And, you know, regardless of using it for a talk or not, it sounds like something that uh, everybody should know about, too. So I will definitely add that to my guilt shelf. <laughs> cool. Thank you. One of the things that I think kept coming up, Saran, was that a lot of the way that you have grown the Code Newbie community and thought about things for the community is people first. And I think that that's unfortunately kind of unique because usually when you have conversations about tech, the first thing people talk about is what you're going to learn, how you're going to learn it. And they give you advice like go to meetups and meet people, but they don't really tell you things like consider how it's going to make a person feel if you have them in this environment, which I think is something that you had talked about specifically with Codeland. So what I take from that is maybe there is a lot more opportunity to bring in some of these like quote unquote touchy feely things to make the tech community in general, just a better community overall, and not just about diversity and inclusivity, but also to be better at what you do, to be better at building better tech. Because when you start having these types of conversations, it introduces things into the concept of what you're building, which will ultimately make better technology for everybody. One thing I, I want to say about that is the prioritization specifically of feelings, of people's feelings specifically, is something that I got to from listening to the community, which is like a different type of prioritization of the people. When I would ask people, why do you join the Twitter chat? Why are you part of the podcast? Or why do you listen to the podcast? Why are you part of our Slack community? The most consistent answer I got is, you make me feel like I'm less alone. You make me feel like there are other people out there who understand me, and that helps me feel like I can do it. And that's not the answer I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be like, because you have cool content, you know, and and hearing that and just hearing how important that aspect is, that the intimidation factor, the feeling of not belonging, the feeling like you shouldn't do it, you can't do it, is so high that all these different resources lowers it to the point where it helps you move forward was a huge insight that I arrived at simply because I, I listened and I asked and I responded. So, yeah, I think that's another thing that's really important is is just making sure you're listening to your users and figuring out not just what are they doing, but also why are they doing it? How are they feeling and optimizing for that? I think a lot of people, I hope a lot of people are wondering what they can do in their own workplace or in their own community to move towards that kind of cooperative organization of their coworkers, of their teammates, of, of the people within their local tech community. And there are some things that you can do. You can look for and support worker-owned cooperative organizations if those exist locally. And if they don't, maybe think about what it would take to start one. Even in your own team, you can work on thinking about how the emotional labor that goes into building your product or whatever it is that you do is shared and whether that's equitable. There are things yeah. that you can do where you work to make it less exploitative for yourself and for your teammates. And and you don't have to be in a position of leadership to do those things. It, one of the things about leadership is that it leadership is doing things. It's not being given a title. So you just get to go do those things to make things more fair for yourself and your coworkers. And that's leadership, whether you're a team lead or a manager or not. This conversation for me has been hugely valuable because a lot of times I'm just in my own space. I'm in my own world. I'm thinking my own thoughts. And there's there's like really, there's not a lot of feedback. There isn't a lot of validation of like, is this really what's important? Does this really matter? And I guess my reflection is more of like a thank you to you all for giving me this opportunity to, to kind of, you know, not just talk about the conference and talk about Code Newbie, but really just talk about the principles and the values that led to what 
people hopefully will experience as a really great conference because it's all of those things that I personally think about the most and that I, you know, I, I, I lose sleep over, I think about in the shower and all that. And so being able to kind of say all those thoughts and feelings out loud and to get feedback on it and to kind of know that I'm not totally off, <laughs> that other people, you know, see the value and the things I see value in is super valuable. So thank you all for that. We're happy to have you. And it's like we've said before, greater than code is cheaper than therapy. (laughs) (laughs) I love that so much. (laughs) So, Saran, this has been a wonderful conversation. I would specifically like to encourage our listeners to refer new people that they may run into to your Code Newbies community. So can you tell us where they can find that and then uh, maybe point people at your conference as well? Before we go, sure, you can find us everywhere. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. We actually added a new chat to our schedule, so we have our normal Wednesday night, 10, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern time, one-hour Twitter chat that we've been doing for years. But we also added a coding check-in that we do on Sundays at 2 p.m. Eastern time. That's basically a half hour of saying, what have you done this week? What are you excited about? What are your plans? And it's just like an extra opportunity for me to cheerlead the crap out of you. And then we have our Slack community, which has, I think, over 9,000 members at this point. And it's a bunch of people who are just super excited to help out and be supportive and debug with you. So if you want some live coding support, definitely check that out. Uh, We also do our own podcast. We've done 134 episodes. It's called the Code Newbie Podcast. And we interview folks uh, at different parts of their coding journey on how they got started, why they're coding, their origin story. And usually we have a particular focus each week. Um, And we've had I think our most popular episode was one called Truck Driver, um, the story of George Moore, who was a truck driver for many, many years. I think it was nine years. And then slowly over many different attempts and and shifts and little decisions here and there was able to get to a point where he is now a developer and he's actually a senior developer. So his story is super inspirational. And finally, I would love for you all to check out Codeland. Uh, so we have, we still have tickets left. We're very close to selling out. But if you go to codelandconf.com, you should see the speakers, the lineup, all that good stuff um, and hopefully I will see you in New York City soon well thank you again Saran this has been a wonderful conversation and uh, listeners we'll be back at you very shortly with another episode thanks everybody thanks everybody